This episode of Mayo Clinic Talks is brought to you by National Dairy Council. Since 1915, National Dairy Council is dedicated to research and education of dairy foods. As a nonprofit organization founded by dairy farmers, National Dairy Council is committed to providing science-based education on dairy's nutritional benefits for health and wellness. Learn more at usdairy.com backslash National Dairy Council. This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Thyroid hormone plays an important role in metabolism of adults, but it plays an even more important role in children. Undiagnosed hypothyroidism in children not only impairs metabolism, but can result in stunted physical growth and impaired cognitive development. Congenital hypothyroidism is one of the most common causes of intellectual disability. This may present as poor performance or behavior problems in school. It can also be associated with hearing and language development. So today's podcast topic is thyroid hormone and brain development in children. And our guest is Dr. Sivan Pitak a pediatric endocrinologist from the Mayo Clinic. We'll discuss how thyroid hormone affects brain development, the causes of hypothyroidism in a fetus or newborn, and whether brain damage from hypothyroidism in childhood is reversible. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Siobhan, thank you for joining me and, and welcome. Great, I'm delighted to be here. Well, this is a topic I knew very little about. I knew certainly about hypothyroidism in adults, but this was eye-opening as I looked into this. I'm gonna ask you to talk about when in a child's development is most important for thyroid hormone and then subsequent brain development. As a pediatrician, I would say, thyroid hormone is important always, just like it's important in adults. Older children who have hypothyroidism have very similar symptoms to adults and young adults. They have constipation, they have fatigue, they can have mood disturbance. But when we talk about brain development, what we're really talking about is the young. So while hypothyroidism can be unpleasant for an adult without other health issues, it can be unpleasant for a teenager, but it's really dangerous for babies and young children. And that danger really starts in utero. Mm -hmm. So thyroid hormone plays an incredible role in in fetal brain development, in neonatal brain development. And really, we consider the issues with thyroid hormone and brain to continue really until about the age of three years. So any time before the age of three years, negative neurologic sequelae can happen when there's a lack of thyroid hormone. Later than that, we have big concerns about growth in children and mood and all of the other kind of adult symptoms that people are much more familiar with. But really before the age of three is really critical for brain development. Well, we're very familiar with the symptoms that hypothyroidism causes in adults and, you know, the fatigue and dry skin and so forth. But how does thyroid hormone affect brain development? So thyroid hormone is important from the very get-go, right in the earliest stages of embryogenesis. And thyroid hormone, actually, there are receptors in the brain 
there are receptors visible very early in fetal development. And thyroid hormone actually is important for differentiation of the brain. It's important for development of various brain cells. It is important for myelination. So delayed myelination will occur in the absence of appropriate thyroid hormone levels. The maturation of the cortex of the cerebellum, those are all affected by lack of thyroid hormone. So is this an all or none phenomenon or is there you know, just some degree of brain damage from an inadequate level of hormone? So like many other things, there are degrees of severity. So there's no such thing as an above point X, all is okay, and below point X, all is lost. Certainly we want to see adequate thyroid hormone levels, but within degrees of hypothyroidism, the more severe the hypothyroidism, the more severe the delays. We typically see the greatest delays, the greatest degree of damage when both the mother and the fetus independently have hypothyroidism. And the most common situation that we see that is very luckily uncommon living where we live. And that is in areas of iodine deficiency. So iodine is the main ingredient, if you like, for thyroid hormone production. And in areas where there is iodine insufficiency, so that is typically when there's insufficient iodine in the diet, the mother won't have enough iodine. Therefore, the mother won't have enough thyroid hormone. Therefore, the mother won't have thyroid hormone to pass across the placenta to the fetus. The fetus won't have iodine that can be concentrated in the fetal cells, and therefore the fetus won't be able to make thyroid hormone. And the old pictures that you'll remember seeing in the books, the cretinism, those photographs, really we only see in that severe, severe end of the spectrum where both mother and fetus are affected. So definitely degrees of severity occur based on the severity of the hypothyroidism. Well, we're used to giving thyroid supplements to adults with some degree of hypothyroidism. How do we use supplements in this situation? Uh, do we give them to the mother or this may seem like a strange question. Can you give them just to the fetus? I am going to call out the specific word that you use there in terms of supplements. I think when he people hear supplements, they think of two different things. Or when I hear about thyroid supplements, we think of levothyroxine or thyroid hormone supplementation. So thyroid hormone supplementation is best given in the form of levothyroxine or T4. And that's at every age. Really, it's in the peripheral tissue where the conversion from T4 to the more active T3 occurs. And we are better off leaving the body decide how much T3 it needs. And I, I realize this is a controversial topic in much more on the adult side than in the pediatric side, whether T3 should be given in addition to T4. But whatever type of thyroid hormone we're talking about, we want to supplement, we want to give back thyroid hormone to any person including a pregnant woman who lacks thyroid hormone. And that's both for her own sake and for the sake of her fetus. So in pregnancy, we know that women who have untreated hypothyroidism, especially more severe hypothyroidism, have adverse pregnancy outcomes. So I'm not an obstetrician. I'm not looking after these mothers, but we know there's more fetal loss. There's more pregnancy-related hypertension, there's more preterm delivery in women who don't receive adequate thyroid hormone replacement. And that occurs even in the range of subclinical hypothyroidism, but especially if we see women with a TSH, let's say, over about 
10 or so. So for sure, thyroid hormone supplementation is necessary for this mother. Now you asked, can we give it to the fetus? What the fetus gets for thyroid hormone in the first trimester, probably seven, eight weeks for sure of embryonal development is maternal thyroid hormone. So the mother needs adequate thyroid hormone levels in order for that very, very early stage of fetal development for that fetus to have adequate thyroid hormone. Now, can I jump in though and say you did use the word supplement so I do want to call out a habit that some people have that honestly people feel that they're doing the right thing that can actually be dangerous so we talked earlier that iodine is the main ingredient for thyroid hormone to make thyroid hormone we live in a part of the world where we have plenty iodine in our diet just through regular diet, whether we eat honestly a perfect diet or whether our diet is fairly unhealthy, we have plenty iodine in our diet. It is incredibly rare in the US to be iodine deficient. So we have plenty iodine in our diet, but often people are diagnosed with hypothyroidism. People recognize the importance of iodine for thyroid hormone and people well-meaning often will take iodine supplements. And truthfully, as adults, If we take iodine supplements, we probably won't come to much harm. So the body has a really, really good way of ensuring that we don't do ourselves harm. So if you think about iodine as the main ingredient to make thyroid hormone, if I take a massive influx of iodine, the danger would be that I would all of a sudden make too much thyroid hormone. The body is very smart and it has various mechanisms to stop that from happening. The main one is that that transporter that moves iodine into the thyroid cell, it's called a sodium iodine transporter, internally in the cell, when there's too much iodine, that sodium iodide transporter is shut down so that no more iodine can come in. It's like, whoa, we have too much raw materials here. Let's shut that down to stop it. And that's called the Wolf-Chaikoff effect, if you remember way back from all of that. After a very brief period of that shutdown, all is good. The sodium iodide transporter moves on back up, but regulated in such a way that it is getting just the right amount of iodine into the cell to make an appropriate amount of thyroid hormone. Unfortunately, that is not something that the fetus can do. So if a mother takes excess iodine, a pregnant mother takes excess iodine, her fetus gets all this excess iodine. Very early in development, that fetus also has that Wolf-Chaikoff effect and turns off that sodium iodide transporter. It says, whoa, whoa, too much iodine coming in. I don't want to make that hormone. We'll turn it off but it can't turn it back on. So unfortunately, when we see mothers well-intentioned taking excess iodine, it can cause a lot of damage to the fetal thyroid because the fetal thyroid will just not make thyroid hormone. And we'll often end up with a goiter as well, with an enlarged thyroid, which in and of itself for a fetus, just in terms of the obstructive problems, the airway issues in the neonatal period, it can cause problems. In my adult patients, I have patients who are taking a large number of nutritional supplements, but I don't recall anybody taking iodine supplements. Are are there patients who take excess iodine? There are. There are patients who take 
go to health food shops and take thyroid support, thyroid supplements, which contain high levels of iodine. I think the main thing to let your patients know is at all times likely tell us what supplements you're taking, mm -hmm. but especially in the context of pregnancy where excess iodine can have an unintended consequence on the fetus. Yeah. Well, if I heard you correctly, it sounds like the fetus starts out using the maternal thyroid hormone and then eventually makes it on their own. So when does brain development occur? Is it right from the beginning or is that a later part of the pregnancy? So which thyroid hormone is responsible for brain development, the maternal, yeah. the fetal, or both? Really both. So in the first, we typically kind of say in the first trimester, the vast majority of thyroid hormone, the infant sees, the fetus sees is maternal. And then really by second trimester, fetal thyroid hormone production is picking up. And towards the end of pregnancy, really, it's pretty much all fetal thyroid hormone production. Brain development starts happening from the very beginning, carries on right through pregnancy and beyond, and right up until we typically say three years as our kind of cutoff for when we consider thyroid hormone being a thyroid hormone or problems with thyroid hormone being an issue for childhood brain development. So really the brain isn't fully developed, many would argue until many, many years later, but in terms of medically and cognition, we tend to think of three years as being, as being the age cutoff. So both maternal thyroid hormone levels are important and then later fetal thyroid hormone okay. by the second trimester and really by the third trimester, it's almost all fetal thyroid production. It does continue to increase as time goes on. And so infants who are born prematurely, for instance, have lower thyroid hormone levels than term babies. And that's probably because if they remained in utero, as they were supposed to, they would be getting what they were making themselves, plus a little bit of extra buffer from the uh, maternal circulation. Okay. And and I'm still experiencing brain development. I'm, I'm I guess I'm a late <laughs> bloomer or something. So you mentioned iodine excess as a cause for hypothyroidism in the fetus. What are some other causes for hypothyroidism? Yeah. So hypothyroidism broadly is either we call it dysgenesis, abnormal formation of the thyroid gland. And that can be a small thyroid. It can be a thyroid that fails to descend so that it sits at the back of the tongue. It can be just a half a thyroid forms. So all sorts of dysgenesis. So being put together wrong, or it can be a problem that the thyroid looks normal. Everything is put together correctly, but those enzymes that are used in that cycle, how iodine is organified, how it joins with the thyroglobulin, how it passes in and out and does all of the things it's supposed to do. If there are problems with any of those, broadly, we call those dishormonogenesis. And the vast majority of cases of congenital hypothyroidism are actually the first group, dysgenesis. So when the thyroid gland does not form correctly, that's about kind of 85% or so of, of congenital hypothyroidism. Thyroidism, the most, the vast majority of the remainder would be this dishormonogenesis. And the dishormonogenesis, the important thing to know about those ones is that they're often genetically inherited. Mostly they're autosomal recessive. And so for autosomal recessive conditions, there would be a one in four recurrence chance for subsequent pregnancies from the same parents. So that's something to be aware.
aware of. Many of those are associated with an enlarged thyroid gland, but not all. So if we see an infant with an enlarged thyroid gland who has congenital hypothyroidism, we tend to think more of the dyshormonogenesis and thinking of a genetic cause. There are some also much, much rarer causes. So for example, iodine excess or iodine deficiency could cause a congenital hypothyroidism. And then there are the ones that are not strictly speaking hypothyroidism, as in the baby is not not making thyroid hormone, but for whatever reason, they are not able to respond to it. So various forms of thyroid hormone resistance or transporter problems where thyroid hormone is made appropriately, but let's say can't get into into the tissues where it's supposed to go. So if you've got a mother and you don't know her thyroid status, or let's say you do and it's normal, when is it clinically apparent that a child has some deficiency of thyroid hormone? Really at any stage. We typically do not recognize hypothyroidism in a fetus unless we're looking for it specifically Mm -hmm. because maybe of a maternal history, unusual genetically inherited, or if we notice a fetal goiter. So if on routine ultrasound, there's a goiter noted, obviously we will wonder about either hypo or hyperthyroidism in the fetus. But it really becomes apparent at birth because every child is offered a newborn screen. Every child should have a newborn screen. And one of the earliest tests offered in that newborn screening program, really all over the country and now all over the world, is screening for congenital hypothyroidism. So we should know from that heel stick test whether a child has congenital hypothyroidism thyroidism or not. I talked earlier about the classic ones that you remember from med school, the cretinism. That is not something we typically see. I can tell you, I have never seen an infant who looked like those pictures in the book because we really don't see that degree, that severity anymore. And even in a child who's born with congenital hypothyroidism, let's say who didn't make a thyroid gland at all, who has thyroid aplasia, We don't see that severe presentation in infancy because remember this crosswalk and the mother and fetus both contributing in those situations, the fetus is just getting thyroid hormone across the placenta from their mother. And so they shouldn't have intrauterine hypothyroidism. So really newborn screen. And truthfully, the newborn screen is how we should figure it out. We should not be looking for symptoms. We should not be waiting for symptoms. We should not Mm -hmm. be saying it's okay, we'll recognize it. We won't. These babies look, act, feel, feed, behave like other healthy babies in the majority of cases. They can have some newborn symptoms, but that is not very common and shouldn't be dependent upon. Okay. Do we know if there are certain parts of the brain that are more susceptible to uh, thyroid hormone than others? We know that it can affect really all areas of the brain, depending on the timing, depending on the severity. But one connection that I do want to remind people is hearing. The severe hypothyroidism very early in neonatal life is often associated with a hearing loss. It's the cochlear development and important brain development is occurring kind of in that late first trimester. And so they can coexist, but really it can affect numerous areas of brain development. The concentrations of thyroid hormone 
in the brain at various timings of development. It's a very tight crosswalk. There are deiodinases in the brain, different types of deiodinases in the brain, some shifting up your active T3, some shifting up your inactive reverse T3 and T2, and different cells in the brain will have greater or lesser deiodinases to really have a very complex relationship with some areas of the brain having far more active T3 and some having far more of the inactive metabolites of thyroid hormone, but really all areas of the brain can be affected. Okay. We know that the nervous system in general is pretty unforgiving when injured. What about the brain damage that occurs from thyroid hormone deficiency? Is it pretty much irreversible? Unfortunately, yes. And that is the main reason and the push to make sure that we don't move away from universal newborn screening. Hypothyroidism, congenital hypothyroidism is the most common cause of reversible potential brain damage. So remember, in the fetal period, even a child who is destined to have congenital hypothyroidism should be okay because of maternal thyroid hormone. But once they are ex utero, they are on their own. And we need to be there so that for the remainder of brain development, we don't let any neurologic damage occur that would be irreversible. Let's say for some reason, uh, what if you see a goiter on an ultrasound during pregnancy? How do you assess that thyroid hormone function in a fetus? And we haven't actually touched much on hyperthyroidism at all yet. So both hypothyroidism in a fetus or hyperthyroidism could be responsible for a fetal goiter. We are more concerned in a fetus about hyperthyroidism in terms of outcomes to the fetus related to a goiter. So if a fetus has a goiter, we don't really need to know what the fetal thyroid hormone levels are as long as we know mothers are okay because the mother will pass thyroid hormones transplacentally. So we need to be concerned about the goiter and we want to work through and think through what could be causing it, wondering about genetic dishormonogenesis conditions running in the family, wondering about a thyroid, wondering about iodine deficiency or iodine excess, and then wondering about and worrying about this airway when the infant is born. But uh, fetal hyperthyroidism can be devastating and can cause fetal loss, can cause fetal heart failure and even high drops in a fetus. And so fetal hyperthyroidism, we will be able to recognize due to the symptoms of hyperthyroidism. So we've been talking a lot about hypothyroidism and the mm-hmm. symptoms you're familiar with in adults with low heart rate, feeling cold, feeling tired, being constipated. Remember the flip side, hyperthyroid symptoms, tachycardia, excess sweating, weight loss, aside from all of the neurologic mood disturbance and all of those. So in a fetus who is hyperthyroid, we will see tachycardia, we will see changes in the bones with advancement of the bone age, we'll sometimes see that the skull bones look abnormal. And so we will want to know if the fetus has hyperthyroidism and that can be, and and that then is treated by treating the mother with a medicine that will cross the placenta. Okay. Now in adults, we think of hyperthyroidism with Graves disease or various types of thyroiditis. What are some causes of hyperthyroidism in uh, childhood? 
Yeah, so graves. And now in childhood or in the fetus? Let's go with both. Okay, let's start with childhood. Really with in childhood, the same causes as we see in adulthood. So the autoimmune thyroid disease, either Graves disease where there's a stimulatory antibody. The stimulatory antibody is stimulating the thyroid to break away from that beautiful feedback loop. I always tell my patients that it's acting as the fake boss of the thyroid, telling the thyroid to make more hormone, despite the fact that the pituitary and uh, hypothalamus are trying to say, stop, stop, stop stop. So a low TSH, high T4, and the presence of those thyrotropin receptor antibodies. We also see destructive thyroiditis. So a painful subacute thyroiditis where you've got a painful, hot, tender neck. That is not common in children, also called silent thyroiditis. It's also not common in adults. But if somebody comes with a red, hot, swollen, tender neck, and they have thyrotoxicosis, that's the cause. We see what people often call hashitoxicosis, so the destructive portion of the autoimmune thyroiditis that will later burn out and become hypothyroidism. We also see that in children. In adults, you see a fair number of adults with a nodule that is what's called a hot nodule or a nodule that is toxic. So a nodule which has broken away from the instructions from the pituitary gland and is acting autonomously. That is not something that's common in children. Children get thyroid nodules. Thyroid nodules in children are less commonly autonomous or hot than they are in adulthood. We also see some other rarer conditions that you can have a, a rare condition where the TSH, a genetically inherited condition where the TSH receptor is just turned on. So it doesn't need TSH to stimulate it for the thyroid hormone just to be producing excess thyroid hormone. This has been a fascinating topic. And, you know, I, I was thinking, you know, initially I was surprised to hear that thyroid hormone has such a role in brain development. But so I realized as a geriatrician, we look for hypothyroidism as a cause for reversible dementia. Mm -hmm. So it does have effects on cognitive function. And does this happen throughout our life? Can a child, you know, who's five, six, seven years old who develops hypothyroidism develop cognitive problems as a result of that? Yeah, excellent question. We see cognitive problems in children with both hypo and hyper. If you think about uh, children, they are growing, they are learning, much more so than us. They're challenged all of the time and in some ways inattention and difficulty with school. Obviously, there can be many other reasons for inattention and difficulty in school, but in a child who has not had attention problems before, who we're seeing a decline in function at school, certainly thyroid can be a cause of that. The great extra sort of objective measure though that we have in children is their growth. So of all things in childhood beyond, again, the symptoms that you see in adulthood also apply for children, but children with hypothyroidism do not grow. So if I saw a child who was being inattentive at school and not doing so well, but they were growing incredibly well and they everything else was normal and they didn't have constipation, dry skin, dry hair, I wouldn't immediately think and we wouldn't screen for hypothyroidism. Whereas if a child is doing poorly in school and you know their growth has kind of slowed down a little bit, absolutely, we should be checking for hypothyroidism. Children with hyperthyroidism also struggle at school with more difficulties with inattention. And in fact, both 
hypo and hyper can be mixed up with ADHD. So sometimes we'll see children really with inattention and you would imagine inattention, that's probably the ah, because I'm wound up hyperthyroid. But some children with hypothyroidism also have struggles with inattention. The good news about this is that it should also be treatable and reversible once their uh, thyroid hormone is replaced. Of course, children, if they have poor attention and difficulty over a prolonged period at school, it's a little different from adults. They may have missed out. They may have actually lost some educational time at school. And so they may need some catching up time, but that's not the same as saying they've actually had a cognitive hit or a drop in IQ, but certainly it may take them some time to kind of catch up with their school development. Okay. Well, Siobhan, you've given us some really interesting information. Can you summarize our discussion, maybe give two or three key points on uh brain development and and thyroid hormone? Yeah, I would say thyroid hormone is important at all stages of our life, starting from the very earliest stages of fetal development. With that in mind, it's important that pregnant women who have thyroid disease have adequate thyroid hormone replacement in pregnancy. I cannot stress enough the importance of newborn screening. It saves brains. It is simple. Thyroid hormone replacement is safe and effective. And with thyroid hormone replacement, children even born with severe congenital hypothyroidism will go on to live healthy, happy lives with normal neurologic outcomes. We've been discussing thyroid hormone and brain development in children with Dr. Siobhan Pittock, a pediatric endocrinologist from the Mayo Clinic. Siobhan, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us today. You're welcome. You can now listen to over several hundred different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. We're honored to have you as a listener and hope you tune in again next week. Stay well.